everyone. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for Corpus Christi Sunday, June 6, 2021. Our gospel this week is packed with hidden gems and secret keys that unlock layers of hidden meaning in Mark's Last Supper account. The Essenes, producers of the famed Dead Sea Scrolls, serve as one of these keys. We'll make the case that Jesus celebrated the Passover with the Essene community in Jerusalem, a thesis that instigates a cascade of implications. And we'll end our time together delving into the idea of the Eucharist as a covenant, that is, an exchange of persons that allows God to share himself with us in ever more intimate ways. Thanks everyone for tuning in again. We have today readings for Corpus Christi and they are some killer readings, really good readings. Um, So I'm excited to be with you today to break them open. And uh, I'm going to keep this introduction as very short, as, as short as I can, because there is so much in here that I am going to struggle to get through it all. We're going to talk about the Essenes. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, Passover. We're going to talk about the different liturgical calendars that the Jews had. Um, We're going to talk about the source and summit of our faith, which is the Eucharist, which is Jesus himself. And this Eucharist is a new covenant. So we need to delve into what the implications are for that. And that's where we'll end our time together. So beautiful things coming here. Buckle your seatbelts. Keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. We're going to move really fast here, but we've got some good things going on. I spent Memorial Day weekend riding roller coasters, if you can't tell. (laughs) All right, let's read together our gospel reading for... Corpus Christi. I should note that there is a possibility that your readings are for the 10th Sunday in Ordinary Time, at least in the United States. Probably not, though. You're probably celebrating the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ, Corpus Christi, in which we read from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16 and 22 through 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the householder, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That was Mark chapter 14, 
verses 12 through 16 and 22 through 26. First off, right off the bat, if you are an astute reader of the scriptures, you may be familiar with the way in which every gospel seems to kind of date the Passover, the Last Supper, the crucifixion in a slightly different manner. Maybe you're not aware of this, but again, if you're an astute reader and you're comparing uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke to John, so that it's synoptics to the fourth gospel, you may perceive what could be some uh, discrepancies. So Mark here, for example, says on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, that's how he sets the scene. That's the setting he gives us for the last supper here. Whereas John, for example, will tell us that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation of the Passover. So what's going on here is, is the last supper when the Passover lambs are sacrificed or is it, uh, is it later because Jesus, according to John is crucified on the day of preparation of the Passover, which implies the Passover or the, the sacrifice of the lamb. So it it can seem like there's some inconsistencies. We will touch on that. And um, there's a a key that unlocks so many details in our gospel, and we will get to that shortly. So keep in mind the potential possibility of inconsistencies. We're going to clear that up completely here in a second. In order to get to the key that clears up all those inconsistencies, we should jump forward to verse 13. It says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Boom, right there. We get the key to understanding so many details, not only in this particular gospel from Mark, but in um, all the gospels and all the accounts of both, both the Last Supper and the Passover. So what is going on here? What is this key that is so easy to just pass over, to just, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, to just gloss over and not even notice a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Well, when we think about this and we put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples, uh, we tend to assume that Jesus is using his divine foreknowledge to just kind of foretell of some particular scene that they will happen to notice. And, and, and that's going to be the sign for them to lead them to the room of the Passover. There might be something of that going on. However, the image of a man carrying a jar of water would not be one that you would see all the time or regularly, at least in general, but also in Jerusalem. And why is that? Because men did not carry water. Men did not carry water. And I'm going to, I'm going to note here just right off the bat that pretty much everything that I have for you for this podcast is taken from a mind-blowingly awesome book called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls by Dr. John Bergsma. 
Dr. Bergsma was my scripture professor in undergrad at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He taught me most of what I know. And uh, his book, he's an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls and his book, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls is awesome. And so he has a whole chapter on um, the Last Supper and how um, uh, the Essenes kind of uh, give us the key to understanding many things in the gospels, but in particular, the Last Supper. So men did not carry water. Either women carried water or servants carried water. Now, clearly it's not a woman here that Jesus is telling them to look out for, but perhaps um, he's telling them to look out for a male servant. But when our Lord says, go into the city and you'll find a man carrying a jar of water, he does not use the Greek word for servant, doulos. Instead, he uses the very clear Greek word for man, anthropos. And so they are looking not just for a male servant carrying a jar of water, but a man carrying a jar of water. And it seems that um, from the customs of the day and the culture of the day, you would have been able to tell the difference between a free man and a servant or a slave. So the disciples are to enter the city and to look for a free man carrying a jar of water, something you don't see every day. Josephus who is very helpful in understanding these details. He's a first century Jewish historian who we get most of our information about uh, Judaism and Palestine in the first century, tells us that there was one group in Palestine that did not have women in it and that did not have servants in it. And this group is a group called the Essenes, all right? Now, you might be like, oh, okay, Katie, yeah, that that totally clears everything up. Now, oh, I just didn't even think about the Essenes. No, you're probably like, oh, who the heck are the Essenes? That doesn't do anything for me. So who are the Essenes? So we need to kind of do a little bit of backpedaling before we go forward to really fully understand the implications of what this tiny little detail unlocks for us in the scriptures. Who are the Essenes? Well, in general, they are a sect in Judaism. So they are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for example. Um, And they were uh, established arguably in response to the Hasmonean high priesthood. Again, you're probably like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Thank, thanks, Katie. That clears things up for me. What the heck is the Hasmonean high priesthood? Well, um, we need to backpedal a little bit more and uh, study very briefly, do a very brief overview of uh, uh, Judaism, the Jewish people uh, after the exile. Okay, so um, we have the Jews, right? Um, they are living in Israel. Um, but after the death of King David and King Solomon, the 12 tribes split and they form two different nations, the Northern tribes and the Southern tribes that come to be called Israel and Judah. Because they uh, split, they become susceptible to foreign powers and the Assyrians take the Northern tribes off into exile they are never returned. And then eventually the Babylonians come and take the Southern tribes off into exile. 
The Babylonian Empire as a world power gives way to the Medo-Persian Empire, who still has the Jewish people in exile. But eventually, King Cyrus of Persia frees the Jews and he sends them back to Palestine. Okay, so they're living in Palestine. However, they still end up coming under the uh, the rule of Greece. Okay, so the Medo-Persians, just as the Babylonians gave way to the Medo-Persians, the Medo-Persians give way to the Greeks. But eventually, Alexander the Great dies, as you may be familiar with from your ancient history classes. And this creates a power struggle. And so the Greek empire is divided up and there's a lot of fighting that goes on. And in the midst of this fighting, the Jewish people are able to successfully initiate a rebellion that allows for a brief approximately 80-year period of Jewish independence. And this is in between the rule of the Greeks and the rule of the Romans, all right? So in between Rome actually completely taking over Palestine, which is where we find the situation in the first century when Jesus comes on the scene, there is a brief period, just less than 100 years, of Jewish independence. Now, this period of uh, rebellion, successful rebellion, and Jewish independence is found in First and Second Maccabees in the scriptures, okay? Now, I bring that up because when I throw out the term Hasmonean and Hasmonean high priesthood, the Hasmoneans are the same people as the Maccabees. So the Maccabees are just their nickname. So Maccabee in, uh, in I think it's Greek, I don't actually know if it's Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but Maccabee nevertheless refers to, it means hammer, all right? So it's it's their nickname because they would strike blows at, uh, at foreign enemies and they were successful in leading the Jewish rebellion. So their family name, their actual family name was uh, Hasmonea. They were the Hasmoneans, all right? And so they initiated this pow- this, this period of Jewish independence in which they uh, uh, essentially began what comes to be called the Hasmonean dynasty, but they do not simply rule politically over the Jews. So in 141 BC, they actually usurp the high priesthood. So the high priesthood is passed down Um, And it is passed down in a very particular line. And um, only that family can serve as high priest. And so it's extremely problematic when the Hasmoneans come in and assert their political influence over the priesthood, specifically the high priesthood. Now, why is this all relevant? Because the theory is, one theory is, and this is a theory that's held by um, Dr. Bergsma, is that the Essenes came to be as a sect in response to the Hasmoneans usurping the high priesthood. So if you read the, and I'm giving you tons of information here, so stay with me. This is, this is, this will all come together, I promise. So um, if you read the documents of the Essenes, which are the Dead Sea Scrolls contained in Qumran or found in Qumran at Qumran. If you uh, read um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically the documents that have to do with the rule of the community, 
um, you always uh, frequently read about this figure called the teacher of righteousness, who appears to be like the founder of the community. And the theory is that the teacher of righteousness who founded the Essenes at Qumran was the high priest who was kicked out not only of his office, but also out of Jerusalem and who was replaced by this fraudulent high priest, uh, the Hasmonean king, okay? So why is this all helpful? It helps us to understand the mindset of the Essenes, which helps to understand some of their practices, which is going to come into play as we delve deeper into the Last Supper, the Passover, um, and Jesus's crucifixion, all right? So Um, the high priest leaves Jerusalem. He goes straight east into the middle of the desert and he builds a quasi-monastic community. So he gathers men around him who practice celibacy. There's no women in their community and um, they practice um, intense um, purity, uh, ritual purity. Um, So they bathe in ritual baths several times a day. Um, They have very strict rules about the uh, food that they eat um, and they pray. They spend their time in prayer and study. So they had this, what appears to be a pretty massive library, which is where we get um, many of the Dead Sea Scrolls from, okay? And what are they doing? They're out in the middle of the desert, directly east of Jerusalem, waiting for the Messiah to come. And they're where they are at Qumran because they believe that the Messiah is going to come from the east as he's making his way to Jerusalem. So they want to meet him when he's on his way to Jerusalem. And they're trying to preserve um, true Judaism because the Judaism now practiced in the temple is tainted and fraudulent, all right? Now, interestingly enough, it appears that you had the quasi-monastic community at Qumran, but it seems that there also developed um, communities of Essenes, um, some of whom may have been women, some of whom may have been married. Um, And this is a really interesting idea because in most of Dr. Bergsma's book is kind of showing some of the Essene roots of Christianity, what appear to be Essene roots of Christianity. This is a fascinating idea because do we not have this in Christianity or at least in in, uh, Catholic Christianity where some people live out their baptismal vocation in a radical way in um, monastic communities separated from the world, practicing a certain intensity of life, right? But then we also have the same people um, practicing uh, their vocation in the world um, and even in the vocation of marriage. And so it appears that um, the Essenes developed um, kind of this, what Dr. Bergsma calls like a third order, if you will, um, that that dwelt in the world. And so Josephus tells us, and this is a direct quote regarding the Essenes. He says, quote, they have no certain city but many of them dwell in every city. So Josephus tells us that there are Essenes in every city. And then Josephus also tells us, this is a direct quote, quote, 
There is in every city where they live one appointed particularly to take care of strangers, all right? To take care of strangers. So the Essenes had a great love for the poor and they highly valued hospitality. This is also fascinating because we see this in um, monastic communities, especially, for example, in the um, Benedictines, right? So they have, they they highly value hospitality. Um, they almost always keep guest houses and their rule tells them they have to treat visitors as Christ and essentially they can't turn anyone away. So keep that in mind if you're ever traveling and you like your hotel plans fall through, just see if there's a Benedictine monastery nearby, knock on the door, they will find a place for you to stay. For real, this is actually a thing. I had some friends a few years ago that they didn't have a place to stay and there's a Benedictine monastery nearby. And I said, go knock on the door and ask if there's a room for you. They they will find you a room. And sure enough, they found them a place to stay for the night. So keep that in your back pocket. Um, so the Essenes, uh, they have these quasi-monastic communities, especially at Qumran, where their members are practicing an intensity of life, but they also have people living in the cities, all right? And this was the case in Jerusalem. And if what Josephus tells us is true, not only were they present in Jerusalem, but they also would have had a a place for visitors or quote-unquote strangers to stay, and be somebody in charge of that that place and providing that hospitality. And so what scholars believe is that when Jesus tells them to go into the city and find a man carrying a jar of water, that that man is an Essene and that he will lead them into the Essene quarter of Jerusalem. And not only just to the Essene quarter, but to the, the, uh, the, the Lord, who is in charge of the upper room and uh, the guest room, which is the upper room, which Jesus has arranged to be used for the last supper. All right. So that appears to be what is going on here. And interestingly enough, the, the, the word. So we, we often talk about the place where Jesus celebrated the Passover as the upper room. And, and right here in Mark's gospel, we have that term, but right before it's called an upper room, it's called a guest room. And this is an, an odd and a rare word in Greek. It's kataluma. And it only occurs here at Mark fourteen fourteen to refer to a guest room. It also occurs at Luke 22, 11 in the Passover account as well to refer to the same guest room. Um, apart from that, it only ever appears in Luke 2 verse 7, and it's the word that's translated as in. Um, when uh, Our Lady and St. Joseph are looking for a place to stay so that she can give birth to our Lord, there is no room for them in the kataluma, in the inn, Okay. So we can see already the sense in which this room was meant to house guests. And it appears that Jesus has made arrangements with the the, the Lord of the house, if you will, whether that be um, uh, the Essene in charge of hospitality or an Essene who just happens to own this home. Um, and he has arranged for it to be used for the Passover. Um a bit of a spiritual aside here. 
um, at the risk of making this podcast go longer. Uh, I love this little detail in Mark's gospel because I have a tendency to think that the disciples were privy to like all of the Lord's plans because, you know, they lived with him, they stayed with him, they walked with him, they followed him, like they 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 brushed elbows with him. They were physically with him in his human body. And so, well, of course, they must have been privy to our Lord's plans. But what this detail shows us is that <laughs> the disciples appear to be no more privy to the Lord's plans than we ourselves are. Jesus just kind of does his own thing sometimes, which is perfectly fine. You know, sometimes we don't like that, but sometimes we like that too. And he makes his arrangements and he gives his disciples the details they need and only the details they need. And they are required to trust in the rest. This is an important uh, spiritual point for us in our own lives. And this is a, this is one thing that I love. If you have not watched it yet, um, the, the TV show, The Chosen um, I would highly recommend it. You are missing out. But also um, they do a wonderful job of portraying this, how the disciples are, they almost never know what's going on. They wake up in the morning and are like, where do you think we're going today? No idea. <laughs> we just do whatever he tells us. So um, the disciples we should guard against this idea that the disciples had the the privilege of all this kind of knowledge of um, what they were going to do, how they were going to spend their days, their weeks, their months, their years with our Lord. Uh, no, I think they had a pretty similar experience actually to the experience that you and I have in our own lives, which is doing a lot of waiting on the Lord and uh, waiting for details, getting minimal details, and just having to trust. So this little, little detail can be a point of meditation for us in our prayer, and I would highly recommend it. All right. So they, the disciples um, do as our Lord tells them to, and they find it uh, just as uh, as expected. So um, he shows them a large upper room furnished and ready, and they prepare the Passover there. Now, I want to get back to uh, or dive more deeper into this idea of Jesus celebrating the Passover with the Essenes, because that is the implication here, that um, Jesus uh, uh, had made arrangements for the Passover to be celebrated and he made arrangements for the Passover to be celebrated in the Essene quarter of Jerusalem. A quick note on that. The Passover had to be celebrated within the city walls. Now, we know from the details in the gospel that our Lord did not stay within the city walls of Jerusalem um, when he came to Jerusalem for festival. This was not uncommon, especially for Galileans because there were too many people descending on Jerusalem for the feasts every year for them to all fit inside the city of Jerusalem, the city walls. So Jesus would stay across the Mount of Olives in Bethany and he would travel back and forth 
um, throughout the, the days that he was near Jerusalem for the festival. However, the Torah prescribes that the Passover be celebrated, like the actual um, meal of Passover had to be celebrated within the city walls, all right? Now, this would have been dangerous for our Lord because at this point, um, people are out to get him and he's having to watch his back. The Sadducees don't like him. The Pharisees certainly don't like him. And so it's interesting here that Jesus chooses to celebrate the Passover with the Essenes. What might be going on here? Well, the Essenes themselves were not very big fans of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't really get along with them. So Jesus and the Essenes have that that in common. The Essenes were also pacifists, so they wouldn't take up violence. And so even if they disagreed with our Lord on some points, um, they probably would not have um, taken offense at him to the point of doing violence. And so um, spending time with the Essenes was a much safer option than putting himself in the quarters of Jerusalem where Pharisees or Sadducees dwelt. The Essenes also would have been somewhat sympathetic to our Lord's um, message. So for example, um, our Lord uh, frequently um, subtly implies disapproval of uh, of how the temple is being run, right? He cleanses the temple, for example, something that would have resonated with the Essenes because the Essenes believed that uh, that temple worship had been defiled, okay? And so it makes sense that Jesus would celebrate on a logistical kind of um, uh, street smarts kind of level. It makes sense that Jesus would have celebrated the Passover with the Essenes in the Essene quarter. Now, there's a couple of implications that come from this. I'm not gonna touch on all of them right now. However, I will bring in one that will uh, elucidate uh, verse 12 and potential inconsistencies, quote unquote inconsistencies, in the dating of the Last Supper in the gospel. So at the very beginning, I said, you know, Mark sets the scene for us saying on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, dot, dot, dot. But this seems to be in contradiction at times to other details in the gospels. Now, how do the Essenes clear this up? Because the Essenes kept a different calendar than the Pharisees and the temple kept. So the Pharisees followed a lunar solar calendar that consisted of 12 lunar months, totaling 354 days. This meant that every three years, the Pharisees would add a 13th month to catch up to the true solar year. So the the Pharisees follow a lunar solar calendar. The Essenes, however, followed a strict solar calendar of exactly 364 days. Now, the reason for this is that because when the Maccabees came into power, the Hasmoneans, they were sympathetic to the Pharisees. And then when they took over running the Jerusalem temple, they changed the calendar. And so liturgical life previously to the Hasmoneans, to the Maccabees, 
had followed the solar calendar that the Essenes had kept faithful to. But when the Hasmoneans come to power, the liturgical calendar that the Jerusalem temple follows switches to the lunar solar calendar. What does that imply? That implies that Jews celebrated the Passover at different times. And so the Essenes celebrated their Passover a couple of days earlier than the uh, Jews running the temple and probably the rest of Jews celebrated the Passover. It would have been a few days later in the week. Now, this lends fascinating kind of imagery to what's going on here in the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and its relatedness to the Passover. If we have time, and I'm rapidly running out of it, (laughs) we will uh, go into more depth on that. But essentially what that means is that not only did Jesus give us the gift of the Eucharist on Passover, but he also gave us the gift of his very life and self. And are those not one in the same in many ways, the Eucharist and, and the gift of his very self on the cross? He gave not only the Eucharist on Passover, but also the gift of himself very close to Passover um, if not on Passover at the time that the lambs were being sacrificed for Passover. Again, if I can breeze through this, uh, we <laughs> will go into a little bit more detail on that. All right. Wow. I almost feel like we need to take like a snack break or a stretch break or something. So another fascinating detail, since we're in the gospel of Mark that I cannot resist is uh, a tradition that the upper room, the Cataluma, in which Jesus celebrated the Last Supper, was uh, owned by a certain family, a tradition that this upper room was owned by a certain family. And that certain family is the family of Mark, John Mark, who is the author of our gospel. Very, very fascinating idea. Okay, so I'll say that again. There is a tradition. I'll point to the scripture here in a second. There is a tradition that the upper room was the home or at least owned by the gospel writer Mark's family. All right, and we are reading from Mark's gospel here. So it adds a beautiful resonance to our gospel as we read through it, knowing that Mark likely had this very, very personal connection with this place. So how, where does this tradition come from? This tradition comes from Acts chapter 12, verse 12, which says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So we'll see as we read through Acts, whenever we do that, we're, we're, um, I say we like we're going to do that on the podcast, not planning on to on it anytime soon. But when you read through the book of Acts, you see that um, the 
disciples, apostles are continually going back to that initial gathering place, which is the upper room. And that's the reference here in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And this room that they're gathering in is the house, is said to be the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark. So Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark is also sometimes called John Mark and his mother is Mary, just like everybody else in the gospel's mother is Mary, right? <laughs> Mary was, if you haven't figured it out already, reading through the Gospels, Mary was like the number one baby name in first century Palestine, like bar none. Like, I, I don't even know what the close second was. This is why all the Marys in the Gospels can get really, really confusing because Mary was a super popular name. Now, this idea that Mark's family owned the upper room accords very nicely with another fascinating tradition. So we can turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. So we're going to jump about, uh, you know, 25 verses ahead from our gospel. It says, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is a scene in the garden of Gethsemane. Super random detail. Every time I read through it, I'm like, what? Now, Josephus tells us an interesting detail about the Essenes. He said that the Essenes were known by their garb and two distinct characteristics of their garb. A little bit of an oddity. They would always wear linen. Now this was interesting because linen was expensive and linen was hard to come by. So linen is um, comes from flax and it was had to be imported from the north, from the Galilee area. Most people would wear wool because that was readily available, easy to manufacture, on and on. So the Essenes would wear linen, which was kind of a, a sign of, uh, I don't know, stateliness. Like it, it, it was more expensive. Linen was more expensive. I'll say that. But... The Essenes were also known, according to Josephus, for only wearing a single garment, which is very weird. Um, you know, people in general layer, and that hasn't really changed. So back in the day, if you will, um, it would have been odd to just wear a single garment. Your Your initial garment that you put on was frequently like, almost like your undergarment, kind of. So... The Essenes wear linen, but they only wear a single garment. Well, don't we see this in Mark 14, 51 and 52? A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There is a Christian tradition that this person here, this young man who followed the 12 and Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane was none other than John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And this accords with this idea that John Mark's family owned the upper room because if it is true that John Mark is the man here in Mark 14, 51 and 52, then John Mark is an Essene, all right? And it would make sense 
that his family would potentially be the owners of the upper room. Wow, so much fascinating, fascinating stuff in our gospel. Let's jump into the second part of our gospel, which is kind of the heart of our feast, the heart of our readings, specifically for our feast of Corpus Christi. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, there's a ton of very fascinating details um, tucked away in our scripture reading here. So I want to focus on this idea of Jesus giving thanks. If you look into the Greek word, the Greek verb here for Jesus giving thanks is Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo, where we get our word Eucharist, okay? That's where it comes from. And this word Eucharist in Greek translates a Hebrew word, toda, toda. And toda means, in general, it means thanks. Like if you go to Israel today and you're at a restaurant and they bring you food, what do you say? Toda, thank you. But in the context of the Old Testament, especially, Toda has the connotation of sacrifice. Why? Because all the sacrifices in the temple are uh, classified into different categories. And there's one particular category of sacrifices called the thank offering. And the thank offering was unique because, and we don't have time to go into all the details of the uniqueness, but it was unique because it was a, an unbloody sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice to give praise for God having saved someone. So when the rabbis were looking at the Passover sacrifice, which is what Jesus is celebrating with his apostles at the Last Supper, and they tried to uh, think through how to categorize it, they decided that the Passover was a todah sacrifice, a thank offering and thanksgiving for deliverance from um, Egypt. So what they are celebrating is a todah. And what Jesus is going to do is initiate a new todah sacrifice the sacrifice that we call the Eucharist, Thanksgiving. Okay, so it even has the same name. It's just its Greek name. Now, what is really fascinating about this is that in rabbinic literature, the rabbis would think through what is going to happen when the Messiah comes. They'd say, they would think through like, is is there still going to be sacrifice? Is there still going to be uh, temple, is any of that going to be needed anymore? And the conclusion that they come to is this, and this is a direct quote from the rabbinic literature. In the age to come, all offerings will come to an end, but the Thanksgiving offering will never end. The Thanksgiving offering will never end. So the rabbis said that in the age to come, which means when the Messiah arrives, all sacrifices, all temple sacrifices will cease except one sacrifice, the Todah, or in Greek, the Eucharist. Well, if that is not mind-blowing enough, I don't know what is, because when we look at the age to come, which is the age in which we are living in the church, 
the Messiah has arrived and he has instituted a new covenant, which is a sacrifice. And it's a particular kind of sacrifice, a thank offering, a todah, a Eucharist. And that sacrifice has remained. All the other sacrifices has ceased to be. Temple worship has ceased. The temple is no longer there. There is no longer sacrifice in Jerusalem. But there is one sacrifice that remains, the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord in the Eucharist. And we're going to see here, again, if I, if I have time, the connection that is, um, that is deeply, uh, deeply there between the Last Supper, the institution of the Eucharist, and Jesus's uh, passion and death upon the cross, okay? So in the age to come, all offerings will cease, they will come to an end, but the thank offering, the Todah, the Eucharist will never end. Ah, this is so good. So Jesus institutes the Eucharist. He says this really fascinating thing though. When he gives them um, his precious blood, he says, truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then we're told at verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Fascinating, fascinating things going on here. First of all, when scholars compare the accounts of the Last Supper, and maybe some of you have heard this, this, this idea, this theory before, Dr. Scott Hahn has a whole book on it called The Fourth Cup. When scholars compare the Last Supper accounts to what we know about the structure of the Passover meal, they discovered that Jesus did not actually finish the Passover meal at his institution of the Last Supper. So there are four cups that are drunk in the Last Supper. The cup that Jesus consecrates at his blood is the third cup. After the third cup is drunk, there is a hymn that is sung in the Passover ritual. And then the fourth cup is drunk. But Jesus ends the Passover abruptly, or so it seems, and he leads his apostles out to the Mount of Olives. Again, so it seems that he ends the Passover early, doesn't finish it, or does he? If we fast forward to Jesus's crucifixion and death on the cross, and I know we're not talking about that. I know we're talking about the Last Supper, but Jesus, for Jesus, his Last Supper is drawn up to and actually includes and concludes with his death upon the cross. If we fast forward to Jesus upon the cross, do we ever see him drinking? Yes, in fact, we see him refusing drink until the time is right. And he cries out, I thirst. And then he drinks of the vinegar, which is spoiled wine. And at that time, he is drinking new in the kingdom of God. Why? Because he has established his kingdom now, having, having, uh, finished having consummated his his suffering, which is going to be what brings about the, the kingdom. And so we see Jesus, the king upon his throne, the throne of the cross, and he's finally drinking the fruit of the vine anew in that kingdom that he has established by his passion and suffering and soon to be momentarily his death, right? Beautiful, beautiful idea. So Jesus 
The sum total is this, that Jesus finishes the Passover, not in the upper room, but he finishes the Passover on the cross. Now, I said that there were two implications um, that come from this idea that the Essenes celebrated Passover at a different time than the rest of the Jews did and the temple celebrated Passover. What are those implications? Okay, the implication is, uh, the implications are these. First of all, because the Essenes celebrate, A, celebrated a Passover at a different time and B, because the Essenes believed that temple worship was defiled, the Essenes did not celebrate the Passover with a lamb. The Essenes did not celebrate Passover with a lamb. And so the implication is that if Jesus celebrated Passover, which he did, I think there's plenty of evidence that he did this, that if the, if Jesus celebrated Passover with the Essenes, there was no lamb present at the last supper. Or was there? So there is no animal lamb at the last supper. But this is so fitting because there is a lamb at the last supper, the true lamb, the lamb of God, who at that meal gives of himself, his very flesh, right? The flesh of the lamb of God. He gives it to his apostles to take and eat. And so there is no lamb at the last supper. And yet there is a lamb at the last supper. Ah, this stuff is so Good. So, so, so good. The second implication has more to do with Jesus's crucifixion, but it's fascinating. It's related to this idea of there not being a lamb of sacrifice. So if Jesus celebrated the Passover earlier than the rest of the Jews and the Jerusalem temple celebrated the Passover, when was the Jerusalem temple Passover celebrate. Well, this is where we can turn to John and how John dates the Passover. John seems to tell us the dating of the Passover according to the Jews. In fact, in throughout his gospel, he frequently will say the Passover of the Jews, and he's meaning the Passover celebrated in the temple, okay? In distinction, for example, from the Essene Passover, all right? And Jesus tells us that, or John tells us that Jesus is crucified on preparation day. And the gospels also tell us that the approximate time at which Jesus is nailed to the cross is sometime around noon. Now, preparation day is the day on which the lambs are sacrificed in the temple to then be taken home by the Jews and eaten at the Passover. And the Torah says, the law says that the Passover lamb cannot be sacrificed until after sundown. Now, this became problematic for the priests in the temple because they were sacrificing thousands of lambs. And if they waited until sundown, they would not get them all done in time for the eating of the Passover. And so the rabbis got together and they said, how can we remain faithful to the law while still, um, you know, providing for the logistical needs of the Passover meal. And they decided to interpret this idea of the sun of sundown being when the sun starts to go down, meaning the priests in the temple in Jerusalem began sacrificing the Passover lambs at noon 
on preparation day. What is the implication of that? The implication is that at nearly the exact time, just hundreds of yards from the Jerusalem temple, when Jesus is being nailed to the cross and raised up on the cross, the lambs, the Passover lambs in the temple begin to be sacrificed as well. This is unbelievably beautiful and fascinating. And there's actually more details of this that that I can go into, but we just do not have time. Um, I think I've maybe touched on some of this when I've given webinars, um, like my Jesus and Jerusalem webinars, where we follow in the footsteps of our Lord uh, through Holy Week, through Jerusalem. I think I've gone into more detail on some of this. And so maybe I'll have to do some more of those so we can go into some of the more fascinating details of this. But I want to end by talking more generally about the Eucharist. And more generally might mean um, less profundity, but that is certainly not the case. When Jesus institutes the Eucharist, he uses a particular word for the Eucharist. He uses this word covenant. And if you've listened to my podcast long enough, or you've come to any of my classes, or you've read any of the professors I have, like I, I, I was taught by like Dr. John Bergsma, you quickly discover that covenant is the key to understanding all of scripture. It's the red thread that runs through all of scripture. So God created us. He created Adam and Eve in a covenant and we broke that covenant. And all of salvation history is God uh, remaking covenants with us and us breaking the covenant until finally he's gonna come and establish a covenant that is once for all. Now to understand the depth of this idea, we need to know briefly what a covenant is. What is a covenant? A covenant is uh, an exchange of persons, okay? So marriage is referred to as a covenant. Two people who are not related swear an oath to one another and in swearing that oath, they become family. This is the reality of a covenant. You don't say to a husband and wife, you're not family because you don't share blood. No, in fact, we see the relationship of a husband and wife to be the most familial relationship. Like they're the most real form of family. This is the power of a covenant. And so God desires that we have this exchange of persons with him, that he gives himself to us and we give ourselves to him. So knowing this idea of a covenant and then knowing that God established his new covenant as the Eucharist, we see then that the Eucharist is the preeminent covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, I just said that covenant is an exchange of persons. And so Jesus establishes the new once for all covenant, which is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is literally an exchange of persons. So in the Eucharist, Jesus gives himself fully and completely body, blood, soul, and divinity. He gives himself to us so that we as Christians have an intimacy with our Lord that is even greater than the intimacy that a husband has with his wife. 
right? Jesus literally comes inside of us to be with us. And this gives his, this gives him so much joy. If we read through the gospels, we hear our Lord saying um, that he has longed to celebrate this Passover with them. What is it about this Passover that he has longed for? Our Lord longs to give himself to us if we would just receive him. This is the story of of us. This is the story of why God created us. This is the story of all of salvation history coming to this culmination and this climax in the Eucharist, wherein Jesus establishes a new covenant, a covenant being an exchange of persons in which this covenant is literally an exchange of persons. And so when we approach the Eucharist, we ought to understand that this is Jesus in an act of sheer and complete love, giving himself completely to us. And what is the proper response? Reciprocation. The proper response is reciprocation. And so we ask Jesus on this special feast to inflame us with even deeper love for his precious body and blood and to give us the grace and the courage to reciprocate that perfect and amazing self-gift that he makes of himself to us. May we reciprocate that each and every time we receive him at mass. And in so doing, in so doing we give him the greatest joy we can possibly imagine. Thanks for sticking with me on this, uh, this whirlwind tour through the Last Supper. Look forward to more episodes with you in the future. God bless you. 